Imagine a, a job performance review. The employee sits down across from his supervisor, and it's immediately clear things have not been going well. The supervisor says, I, I have to say things have continued to spiral downward since your last review. Tasks that are given to you need to be redone almost immediately. You consistently fail to meet the established targets. We've patiently and repeatedly attempted to, to raise your results. But once again this year, you failed. Every effort comes up short. Nothing seems to make a difference. I'm afraid this just isn't working any longer. A performance review with failure written across every aspect of the job. That's the assessment here of the Old Testament law. Year after year, you have failed to meet the standards. Year after year, you have not been able to accomplish the, the atonement that is necessary. Failure, repeatedly, again and again. Yes, there are a, a few positives. What has the law positively done for us? The law has prepared us for Christ. And the law reminds us of our sin. But the law could never completely atone for sins. The law could never deal with our guilt. Christ alone is our atonement. Christ alone offers us forgiveness. No, notice the contrast here in this passage between the, the incompetence of the law and the power and sufficiency of Christ alone. Look at the, the, the law was incompetent to save. Look, look back at verse 1. The law, we're told here, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And so as you, as you look down and, and see the shadow, what were you meant to do? Recognize that it's just a shadow. You're supposed to, to look up and see the reality. When my, when my kids were little, we would play a game when we'd be out on a walk on a sunny afternoon where we'd stomp on each other's shadows. Now, it's a funny game because you can dive into the cover of a tree's shadow to hide yourself, or, or you, can, you can ambush someone unsuspectingly by jumping in front of them and crushing their shadow, but, but it's a funny game because no one gets hurt. Everybody understands that the shadow is, is merely the, 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 the shadow that's cast. It, it, you have to look up to see the, the reality. That's what the law was always meant to do. The law, you, you looked and saw, this isn't enough. This can't do it. And so you're, you're walking in the shadow meant to look up and see the cross, see the sacrifice that God himself would provide. We see that the verse 1 continues, that the law for this reason can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Why? Why is the law unable to make people perfect? Because it has to be repeated endlessly year after year. Over and over and over again. Sacrifices every day, repeated endlessly, year after year. A reminder that, that on that day of atonement, that, that one day each year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, when he would offer the, the sacrifice, the scapegoat, the sins of the, the nation placed on this goat, that this was going to have to be repeated next year. We're going to have to do this again and again. 
the, the question in verse 2 makes that clear. If, if it could make people perfect, would they not have stopped being offered? You see, if the sacrifices, if the law was, was successful, then it would have come to its own conclusion. Sins would have been atoned for. There's no longer any work to be done. But, but what are we told in verse 2? We're told that the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And yet these feelings of guilt remain. Look at verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. See, that's the positive role of the law, to remind you how terrible you are, how hopeless you are, that you cannot save yourself. So, so yes, the law is, is accomplishing something, so we, we can put something in the, the positive side of the, the review ledger. The law was reminding the people of their guilt, an annual reminder that they have sinned. See, the law was incompetent to save. Look at verse 4 because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You cannot, you cannot forgive the sins of, of, a, of a person through the sacrifice of an animal. This was a temporary substitute, an incomplete substitute, an imperfect substitute. The law was incompetent to save, but Christ alone saves. Look at the contrast that we see beginning here in verse 5. Therefore, because the law was incompetent, therefore, when Christ came into the world, do you hear, I mean, the, all, all the author is doing is introducing Psalm 40, this quotation from the Old Testament. He's merely introducing, okay, let's think about what the Old Testament itself is reminding us. But do you notice how even just introducing that scripture it comes this earth-shattering announcement, therefore, when Christ came into the world, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who has cast his shadow the, in which we've been walking, the one for whom we've been longing, he has arrived. When Christ came into the world, we, we have now the words of, of Psalm 40, the words of the psalmist, the words of the Old Testament people now on the lips of the Messiah himself. When the Messiah arrives, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you prepared for me. If you, if you flipped back and you, you read Psalm 40 in your Old Testament, you would see the translation there is from the, directly in your, in your Old Testament is directly from the Hebrew. Here in the New Testament, he's, he's quoting from the, the, the Septuagint, from the Greek. And so, so the translation's a little different. It's, it says here, a body you prepared for me, making absolutely clear that we're talking about the incarnation, the arrival of Christ in the flesh, standing before us to speak these words to God. The Old Testament, it actually says, an ear you have, you have carved out for me. Now, that's just making clear what, what's, what's being, this, our, our chapter is just making explicit. To carve out an ear means to, to have an ear to listen and obey to hear the word of God. And now the Messiah himself stands in our presence in bodily form and says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. You see the, the contrast, the law, the, the sacrifice of, of bulls and goats is unable to save us, but now the Messiah stands in human flesh before us, an atoning sacrifice. The Messiah, to do the perfect will of God, to, to fulfill 
the will of God, to obey. Now, verse 8 begins to, to explain to us the, the, the explanation of, of what Psalm 40 is teaching us. It's, this is not about sacrifices and burnt offerings. They could never perfectly atone for sin. What was God looking for? Not merely the, 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 the appearance of ritual sacrifice, but a change of heart, a change of, of someone's life. But the Messiah, look at verse 9, the Messiah is the one who can stand up and say, here I am, I have come to do your will. But do you hear the good news? What the law was incompetent to do, Christ himself stands up and says, I will do it. Here I am. I have come to fulfill your will, Father in heaven. I have come to be the perfect sacrifice. I have come to do everything. This is, this is the, the story of grace for us. And so verse 9 says that, that Christ now sets aside the first. The first sacrifices no longer do the sacrifices take place at the temple? No longer are we required to bring lambs and goats and bulls, but we come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who has done the will of God. Look at verse 10, and, and we see the, the declaration that by that will, the will of God the Father, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus has done it. Jesus is the only way to deal with guilt. It is in Christ alone that we find forgiveness and hope. And so, so how do you deal with your guilt? I mean, maybe, maybe you, you, you resist this kind of teaching because you think here, isn't this just some argument made to a bunch of Jews who have become Christians about how they should stop taking Old Testament sacrifices and then now they can trust in Jesus? I mean, isn't that just good for them? This is a nice historic lesson to understand what, what took place in the history of the church, but what does this have to do with me? Because maybe you've, you've tried to figure out other ways to, to deal with your guilt, but, but how do you do it? Or, or, or let me ask you even a more fundamental question. How do you even explain the presence of guilt in your life. Wilfred McClay is a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. He observes in an article that was, was picked up earlier this year by the New York Times, uh, he, 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 he wrestles with the struggle to make sense of guilt in modern society. See, here, here's the argument he's making. You and I as modern people shouldn't have to worry about guilt. See, because we live in the, in the, the shadow of, of Nietzsche and the philosophers who have done away with God, who've told us that God is dead. And so if God is dead, then as the philosophers predicted, you and I should feel no guilt anymore because there's no one to stand in judgment over us, right? But the problem is, even with that view of the world, even if we try and push God out of the world, even if we agree with Nietzsche and declare that God is dead, you and I still feel guilt. And, and what Professor McClay is actually saying is, Worse, you and I feel more guilt now than we did before. Our awareness of guilt has, has, not, has not shrunk but has grown in modern society. But our resources for dealing with guilt are disappearing. See, now you might think, well, I'll just go and I'll, if I've done something wrong to offend someone, it's a social contract, and so I'll go and I'll ask for forgiveness. But do you see the problem is we've reduced forgiveness from an, from an actual judgment before a holy God to, 
to this mere transaction between people. And you know what? When we talk about forgiveness most of the time, what Professor McClay says is we're not actually talking about relieving the, the debt of guilt the other person owes us. Well, what are we talking about? We say, I need to forgive so that I can get on with my life. Now, I think there is truth in that. There is truth that, that if you are unwilling to forgive, then the bitterness will destroy you. But that's what we've reduced forgiveness to. Forgiveness becomes this random act of kindness whereby we, we, we choose for our own sake to forgive you. But that doesn't actually deal with my guilt if I come and ask for forgiveness. See, the real problem is that guilt continues to grow. McClay writes, he says, I can see pictures of a starving child in a remote corner of the world on my television and know for a fact that I could travel to that faraway place and relieve that child's suffering immediately if I care to. I don't do it, but I know I could. See, he's, he's offering us another modern way to deal with guilt. I just get out there and I, on my own, change the world. But here's the problem. This is, this is how he continues. He says, whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it's never as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give enough to the poor or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. Do you, do you see the problem? In the modern world, you and I are more aware of our guilt because we see the news accounts not just from our, our own family and friends, but we see the news accounts from around the world. We see the systematic problems that, of which you and I are a part. So we're increasingly aware of our own guilt, but we have no resources to deal with them. Because if dealing with my guilt is just up to me, I haven't done enough yet. There's always more I could give, more time I could serve, more, more ways that I could say I'm sorry, but I know that it's not enough. And culturally, we've seen this at work in recent weeks in our own country. And it's right for us to stand up and condemn racism as sinful and unbiblical. And those that would, would claim to uh, that kind of superiority in the name of Christ, we call that heresy. It's a lie. But the problem is culturally, we have nowhere to go. We don't even have a starting point to deal with the guilt that we face. And, okay, I'm not going to solve this problem for you this morning. But what I want us to see is Christ alone gives us a starting point. Because Christ alone offers us real forgiveness, objective forgiveness, forgiveness that is, that is transactional from God himself at the core of the universe, who we are, forgiveness is yours. And then, because you have been forgiven, you no longer have to, to try and do enough to atone for your sins because you're forgiven already, objectively. You're freed now to serve others out of love, out of care. You see, I, I haven't solved the problem. But what Hebrews 10 is showing us is that that feeling of guilt, this is not just some, some Jewish idea that's only stuck on religious people. 
So you and I feel that same kind of guilt even in our modern society. Even as we've thrown off God, we still feel the oppressive weight of guilt. And so the Scripture gives us a path to deal with that guilt. Christ alone is the true method for dealing with our sins. See, does your view of the world offer you any real resource for dealing with this problem of guilt, this persistent, lingering, ongoing, perpetual, year after year, day after day weight of guilt which is on you? Christ alone offers forgiveness. And Christ alone empowers us to serve. We don't serve in order to appease our own guilt. We're genuinely free to serve others, even without the expectation of receiving anything from them. Because look here at the power, the power of the forgiveness which is given to us. We've seen the contrast between the incompetence of the law and the sufficiency of Christ. And now look at the power that is found in Christ alone. The contrast is again set for us in verses 11 and 12 between the law and Christ. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So we hear the repetition of the day after day again and again. And what's the posture of the priest of the law? He stands. Why? There's work to be done. There's another sacrifice to be slaughtered. There's more blood to be spilled. But look at the contrast of, of verse 12. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see the contrast. Day after day, again and again, once for all. The priests of the Old Testament had to stand because there was more to be done. There was never any rest. But what does Jesus Christ do? He has sat down. The session of Jesus Christ, this, the seated posture of Christ in heaven, doesn't mean that Christ is no longer active. It means there is no sacrifice left to be made. Christ is still the king ruling on the throne. We see that in, in verse 13 as the, the writer here picks up the language of Psalm 110. It's a psalm that's already been quoted earlier in, in the book of Hebrews. The psalm which declares the coronation of Jesus Christ as the king of the universe, the one who has his enemies will be made his footstool. Why? Look at verse 14. Because Jesus Christ, by his one sacrifice, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So you have been made perfect in the eyes of God, and you are in this life being made holy. Do you see the power of forgiveness to change your life? the power, the work of God in your life, Christ is the one who has made us holy. And now the, the writer will quote again from, from, the song, or from, from the prophets, a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. We read in verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. Again, showing us the resources available to us in the gospel. The Holy Spirit is at work. He's the one who has testified about this. And so we quote from the, the prophet Jeremiah, that God himself is making a new covenant that after that time, God says, I will put my law in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds in verse 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where, they, where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. 
Do you see the power that is available in Christ alone? The Holy Spirit given to you, Christ making you holy, the promises that God is, is writing his law in your hearts, that he's changing you from the inside, that he's transforming you, that you can now with Christ stand up and, and, and do the will of God, your Father. And then we heard these words already in our call to worship this morning, but, but we have now the, the, the next therefore. We, we've, we've seen the argument to this point. The law was incompetent to save, but Christ alone saves. Now verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, right, he's summarizing the argument, because Christ alone has brought you salvation. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see what the scriptures are calling you to do? Put your trust in Christ, and having been cleansed by Christ, now come before God with full assurance, with a boldness, with a confidence that you can stand before a holy God as one who has now declared to be innocent. Your guilt removed because it was placed objectively, actually, in reality, on Christ. And now you're freed. Look at, look at verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Having been freed to stand before Christ, now church, get out there and love one another. Serve one another, care for one another. That's the power of the gospel that comes in Christ alone. There is no other way to be saved except through Christ. There is no other sacrifice that can deal objectively, ultimately, with your guilt. Whatever efforts you, you try this week, in this lifetime, it will not be enough. Like the sacrifices of the Old Testament system, all that you will do is expose your sinfulness again and again, your failure, your inability to, to stand before a holy God. But when you put your trust in Christ, then, then Christ empowers us to love, to serve others, to care for them, without having to, to atone for ourselves because our sins have been atoned for. We can serve because we have been forgiven. We can forgive others because we have been forgiven. Missionary Jonathan Goforth. I mean, that's such a missionary name. God calls, and he decides to go forth and follow God. His, his name is Jonathan Goforth. He was a, a Canadian missionary at the, the turn of the, the beginning of the 20th century, serving in China. He served there and saw the devastation that was brought on the church, on the Christian church by the, the Boxer Rebellion, the, the uprising against colonialism, but, but also an uprising against the church. He says that the Shin Minfu Church lost 54 martyrs. And so the church compiled a list of 250 names of their neighbors who had conspired in these murders. An evangelist was... was called there to, to preach, and his father had been murdered, and he confessed to the church that he could not. Indeed, he would not forgive. He would spend his life tracking down the man who had murdered his father. But after he spoke, nine boys in the congregation, young men who had lost family members, stood in, 
one by one ask the church to pray. Just pray that I would be able to forgive those that have killed my loved ones. This evangelist went home and realized that prayer won't be answered if they follow my example. Because those little boys will look to me as the, the leader, the ordained minister, the evangelist in the church, and they'll say, he doesn't have to forgive. And so he went back. The next day he presented each of those boys, he called them to the front of the church, and he presented them with a hymnal. He says, I, I've bought these nine hymn books. I'm going to present one to each of you in the hope that every time you open it to give praise to God for what he has done for you, from its pages, you will recall that I, an evangelist, received from God the grace to forgive my father's murder. The church took that list of 250 names and ripped it up, giving praise to God who could forgive them. See, what you and I have here is forgiveness that begins in Christ alone. Because Christ alone offers you the solution. It is Christ alone who forgives. Christ alone saves. Your hope is found in Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we acknowledge, Lord, the, the challenge of this passage to go forth, to, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Lord, for some of us, we wrestle at the level of, of believing whether or not this could be true, whether or not the work of, of Jesus in his death could really provide forgiveness to me. And so, Lord, for those who, who wrestle with that, Lord, I pray that even now, as we pray that we would find forgiveness in Christ alone. Lord, that we would see that Jesus is the Savior who has paid the penalty for all of my sins, that his sacrifice once for all brings salvation. Lord, for those of us who wrestle with how to apply this gospel, how to, how to approach you in bold assurance, in the fullness of faith, Lord, give us the, the faith to believe. Let your spirit work in us. Lord, apply your law to our hearts impress it upon our minds that we might stand up to do your will, that we would love one another, that we would serve one another, that we would proclaim the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Lord, we rejoice that you have provided the way of salvation for us. And so, Father in heaven, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our sacrifice, Jesus the one who gave his life once for all. Amen.